Welcome back to Amplify, the podcast corollary to EB Medicine's emergency medicine practice. I'm Jeff Nussbaum, and I'm back with my co-host, Nachi Gupta. This month, we're talking about a topic that is ripe for review this time of year. We're talking influenza, diagnosis, and management. Very appropriate as a cold is settling in here in New York City, and we're already starting to see more cases of influenza. Remember that as you listen through the episode, means we're about to cover one of the CME questions for those of you listening at home with the print issue handy. This month's issue was authored by Dr. Al Giwa of the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, Dr. Chinwe Ogadegbe of Seton Hall School of Medicine, and Dr. Charles Murphy of Metro West Medical Center. And this issue is peer-reviewed by Dr. Michael Abraham of the University of Maryland School of Medicine and Dr. Dan Egan, Vice Chair of Education of the Department of Emergency Medicine at Columbia University. The information contained in this article comes from articles found on PubMed, the Cochrane Database, Center for Disease Control, and the World Health Organization. Additionally, guidelines were reviewed from the American College of Emergency Physicians, Infectious Disease Society of America, and the American Academy of Pediatrics. Some brief history to get us started. Did you know that in 1918-1919, during the influenza pandemic, about one-third of the world's population was infected with influenza? One-third of the world. That is wild. How do they even know that? Not sure, but it's also worth noting that an estimated 50 million people died during that pandemic. Clearly a very deadly disease. Sadly, that wasn't the last major outbreak. 50 years later, the 1968 Hong Kong influenza pandemic, H3N2, took between 1 and 4 million lives. In just last year, we saw the 2017-2018 influenza epidemic with record-breaking ED visits. This was the deadliest season since 1976, with at least 80,000 deaths. The reason for this is multifactorial. The combination of particularly mutagenic strains causing low vaccine effectiveness, along with decreased production of IV fluids and antiviral medication because of the hurricane, all played a role in last winter's disastrous epidemic. Overall, we're looking at a rise in influenza-related deaths, with over 30,000 deaths annually in the U.S. attributed to influenza in recent years. The ED plays a key role in outbreaks since containment relies on early and rapid identification and treatment. In addition to the mortality you just cited, influenza also causes a tremendous strain on society. The CDC estimates that epidemics cost $10 billion per year. They also estimate that an epidemic is responsible for 3 million hospitalized days and 31 million outpatient visits each year. It's thought that up to 20% of the U.S. population has been infected with influenza in the winter months disproportionately hitting the young and elderly. Deaths from influenza have been increasing over the last 20 years, likely in part to a growing elderly population. And naturally, the deaths that we see from influenza also disproportionately affect the elderly, with up to 90% occurring in those 65 or older. Though most of our listeners probably know the difference between an influenza epidemic and pandemic, let's review it anyway. When the number of cases of influenza is higher than would be expected in a region, an epidemic is declared. When the occurrence of disease is on a worldwide spectrum, the term pandemic is used. I think that's enough epidemiology for now. Let's get started with the basics of the influenza virus. Influenza is spread primarily through direct person-to-person contact via expelled respiratory secretions. It's most active in the winter months, but can be seen year-round. The influenza virus is a spherical RNA-based virus of the orthomyxoviridae family. The RNA core is associated with a nucleoprotein antigen. Variations of this antigen have led to the three primary subgroups, influenza A, B, and C, with influenza A being the most common. Influenza B is less frequent, but is more frequently associated with epidemics, and influenza C is the form least likely to infect humans. It's also milder than both influenzas A and B. But back to influenza A. 
It can be further classified based on transmembrane or surface proteins, hemagglutinin and neuraminidase, or H and N for short. There are actually 16 different H subtypes and 9 different N subtypes, but only H1, H2, H3, and N1 and N2 have caused epidemic disease. Two terms worth learning here are antigen drift and antigen shift. Antigen drift refers to small point mutations to the viral genes that code for the H and N. Antigen shift is a much more radical change with reassortment of viral genes. When cells are infected by two or more strains, a new strain can emerge after genetic reassortment. With antigen shift, some immunity may be maintained within a population infected by a similar subtype previously. With antigen drift, there's loss of immunity from prior infection. The appearance of new strains of influenza typically involves an animal host, like pigs, horses, or birds. This is why you might hear a strain called swine flu, equine flu, or even avian flu. Close proximity to these animals facilitates co-infection and genetic reassortment. I think that's enough for basic biology. Let's move on to pathophysiology. When inhaled, the influenza virus initially infects the epithelium of the upper respiratory tract and alveolar cells of the lower respiratory tract. Viral replication occurs within four to six hours. Incubation is 18 to 72 hours, and viral shedding is usually complete roughly seven days after infection, but it can be longer in children and immunocompromised patients. As part of the infectious process and response, there can be significant changes to the respiratory tract with inflammation and epithelial necrosis. This can lead to viral pneumonia and occasionally secondary bacterial pneumonia. The secondary bacterial pathogens that are most common include Staph aureus, Strep pneumonia, and H. influenza. Despite anything you may read on the internet, vaccines work, and luckily influenza happens to be a pathogen which we can vaccinate against. As such, there are three methods approved by the FDA for producing influenza vaccines, egg-based, cell-based, or recombinant influenza vaccines. Once the season's most likely strains have been determined, the virus is introduced into the medium and allowed to replicate. The antigen is then purified and used to make an injection or nasal spray. It isn't easy to create vaccines for all strains. H3N2, for example, is particularly virulent, volatile, and mutagenic, which leads to poor prophylaxis against this particular subgroup. In fact, a meta-analysis on vaccine effectiveness from 2004 to 2015 found that the pooled effectiveness against influenza B was just 54%. Against the H1N1 pandemic in 2009, it was 61%. And against the H3 and N3 virus, it was a very dismal 33%. H3N2 dominant seasons are currently associated with the highest rates of influenza cases, hospitalizations, and deaths. Those are overall some low percentages. So should we still be getting vaccinated? The answer is certainly a resounding yes. Despite poor protection from certain strains, vaccine effectiveness is still around 50%, and it prevents severe morbidity and mortality in those patients. That's right. The 2017 and 2018 vaccine was only 40% effective, but this still translates to 40% less severe cases and a subsequent decrease in death and hospitalization. Before we get into hospitalization, treatment, and preventing death, let's talk about the differential. We're not just focusing on influenza here, but any influenza-like illness, since they can be hard to distinguish. The CDC defines influenza-like illness as a temperature greater than 100 degrees Fahrenheit, plus cough or sore throat, in the absence of a known cause other than the influenza. Therefore, influenza should really be considered on the differential of any patient who presents to the ED with a fever and URI symptoms. The differential, when considering influenza, might include mycoplasma pneumonia, strep pneumonia, adenovirus, RSV, rhinovirus, parainfluenza virus, legionella, and community-acquired MRSA. With the differential in mind, let's move on to pre-hospital care. For the pre-hospital setting, there isn't much surprising here. Stabilize and manage the respiratory status with all of your standard tools, oxygen for those with mild hypoxia, and advanced airway maneuvers for those in respiratory distress. 
Of note, EMS providers should use face masks themselves and place them on patients as well. As community paramedicine and mobile integrated health become more common, this is one potential area where EMS can keep patients at home or help them seek treatment in alternate destinations to avoid subjecting crowded EDs to the highly contagious influenza virus. It's also worth noting that most communities have strategic plans in the event of a major influenza outbreak. Local, state, and federal protocols have all been designed for effective care delivery. All right, so now that the EMS crew, wearing proper PPE of course, has delivered the patient, who is also wearing a mask, to the ED, we can begin our ED history and physical. Don't forget that patients present with a range of symptoms that vary by age. A typical history is two to five days of fever, nasal congestion, sore throat, and myalgias. You might also see tachycardia, cough, dyspnea, and chills as well. Van Wormer and others conducted a prospective analysis of subjective symptoms to determine correlation with lab-confirmed influenza. They found the most common symptoms were cough in 92%, fatigue in 91%, and nasal congestion in 84%, whereas sneezing was actually a negative predictor for influenza. Sneezing? Really? I can't wait to get the press gainy results from the sneezing patient I discharged without testing for the flu based on their aggressive sneezes. Aggressive sneezes? I can't wait to see your scale for that. Hopefully I'll have it out in next month's annals. In all seriousness, I'm not doing away with flu swabs just yet. In another retrospective study, Monto et al. found that the best multivariate predictors were cough and fever with a positive predictive value of 79%. Yet another study in children found that the predominant symptoms were fever in 95%, cough in 77%, and rhinitis in 78%. This study also suggested that the range of fever was higher in children and that GI symptoms like vomiting and diarrhea were more common in children than adults. Aside from the symptomatology, there are quite a few other diagnostic tests to consider, including viral culture, immunofluorescence, RT-PCR, and rapid antigen testing. The reliability of testing varies greatly depending on the type of test, quality of sample, and the lab. During a true epidemic, formal testing might not be indicated, as the decision to treat is based on treatment criteria like age, comorbidities, and severity of illness. We'll get to treatment in a few minutes, but diving a bit deeper into testing, there are three major categories of tests. The first detects influenza A only. The second detects either A or B, but cannot distinguish between them. And the third detects both influenza A and B and is subtype specific. The majority of rapid testing kits will distinguish between influenza A and B, but not all can distinguish between them. Fluorescent antibody testing by DFA is relatively rapid and yields results within two to four hours. Viral culture and RT-PCR remain the gold standard, but both require more time and money, as well as a specialized lab. As a result, rapid testing modalities are recommended. Multiple studies have shown significant benefit to the usefulness of positive results on rapid testing. It's safe to say that at a minimum, rapid testing helps decrease delays in treatment and management. Looking a bit further into the testing characteristics, don't forget that the positive predictive value of testing is affected by the prevalence of influenza. In periods of low influenza activity, as in the summer, a rapid test will have low positive predictive value and high negative predictive value. The test is more likely to yield false positive results, up to 50% according to one study when prevalence is below 5%. And conversely, in periods of high influenza activity, a rapid test will have a higher positive predictive value and lower negative predictive value and is more likely to produce a false negative result. In one prospective study of patients who presented with influenza-like illness during peak season, Rapid testing was found to be no better than clinical judgment. During these times, it's probably better to reserve testing for extremely ill patients in whom diagnostic closure is particularly important. 
And since the quality of the specimen remains important as well, empiric treatment of critically ill patients should still be considered. Which is a perfect segue into our next topic, treatment, which is certainly the most interesting section of this article. To start off, for mild to moderate disease and no underlying high-risk conditions, supportive therapy is usually sufficient. Antiviral therapy is reserved for those with a predicted severe disease course or with high-risk conditions like long-standing pulmonary disease, pregnancy, immunocompromise, or even just being elderly. Note to self, avoid being elderly. Good luck with that. Anyway, early treatment with antivirals has been shown to reduce influenza-related complications in both children and adults. Once you've decided to treat the patient, there are two primary classes of antivirals, adamantane derivatives and neuraminidase inhibitors. Oh, and then there is a new single-dose oral antiviral that was just approved by the FDA, Biloxivir marboxyl, or Zofluza, which is in a class of its own. It's a polymerase endonuclease inhibitor. The oldest class, the adamantane derivatives, includes amantadine and rimantadine. Then the newer classes of neuraminidase inhibitors include oseltamivir, which is taken by mouth, xanamivir, which is inhaled, and paramivir, which is administered by IV. Oseltamivir is currently approved for patients of all ages. A 2015 meta-analysis showed that the intention to treat infected population had a shorter time to alleviation of all symptoms from 123 hours to 98 hours. That's over a day less of symptoms. Not bad. There were also fewer lower respiratory tract complications requiring antibiotics and fewer admissions of any cause. Really, not that bad overall. Zanamivir is approved for patients 7 and older or for children 5 or older for disease prevention. Zanamivir has been associated with possible bronchospasm and is contraindicated in patients with reactive airway disease. Paramivir, the newest drug in its class, is given as a single IV dose for patients with uncomplicated influenza who have been sick for two days or less. Paramivir is approved for patients 2 or older. This is a particularly great choice for those that are vomiting. And as you mentioned before, just last month, the FDA approved Biloxivir, a single-dose antiviral. It's effective for influenza type A or B. Note that safety and efficacy have not been established for patients less than 12 years old, weighing less than 40 kilograms, or pregnant or lactating patients. Unfortunately, there have been some pretty notable antiviral resistances in the past, more so with the adamantane class, but recently also with the neuraminidase inhibitors. In 2007 to 2008, an oseltamivir-resistant H1N1 strain emerged globally. Luckily, cross-resistance between biloxivir and the adamantanes and neuraminidase inhibitors isn't expected, as they target different viral proteins, so this may be the answer this year and in the future. Let's talk chemoprophylaxis for influenza. Chemoprophylaxis with oseltamivir or zanamivir can be considered for patients who are at high risk for complications and were exposed to influenza in the first two weeks following vaccination, patients who are at high risk for complications and can't receive the vaccination, and for those who are immunocompromised. Chemoprophylaxis is also recommended for pregnant women. For post-exposure prophylaxis for pregnant women, the current recommendation is to administer oseltamivir. We should also discuss the efficacy of treatment with antivirals. This has been a hotly debated topic, especially with regards to cost versus benefit. In a meta-analysis using time to alleviation of symptoms as the primary endpoint, oseltamivir resulted in efficacy of 73%, with a wide 95% confidence interval from 33 to 89%. And this was with a dose of 150 milligrams per day in a symptomatic influenza patient. Similarly, zanamivir given at 10 milligrams per day was 62% effective, but again with a wide 95% confidence interval from 15 to 83%. And of note, 
Other studies have looked at paramivir, but have found no significant benefits other than the route of delivery, which again is IV. In another 2014 study by Mathuri and others, neuraminidase inhibitors were associated with the reduction in mortality, with an adjusted odds ratio of 0.81, with a 95% confidence interval from 0.7 to 0.93. Also, when comparing late treatment to early treatment, that's within two days of symptom onset, there was a reduction in mortality risk with adjusted odds ratio of 0.48, with a 95% confidence interval from 0.41 to 0.56. These associations with reduction in mortality risk were less pronounced and less significant in children. Mortality benefit? Certainly nothing to scoff at there. They further found an increase in mortality hazard ratio with each day's delay in initiation of treatment up to five days when compared to treatment initiated within the first two days. But back to the children for a second. Another review of neuraminidase inhibitors in children less than 12 years old found duration of clinical symptoms was reduced by 36 hours among previously healthy children taking oseltamivir and 30 hours by children taking zanamivir. I think that's worth summarizing. According to this month's author's review of the best current evidence, use of neuraminidase inhibitors is recommended, especially if they are started within two days for elderly patients and those with comorbidities. Seems like there's decent data to support that conclusion. But let's not forget that these medications all have side effects. These drugs actually tend to be well-tolerated. The most frequently noted side effect of oseltamivir is nausea and vomiting, while zanamivir is associated with diarrhea. Amazing. Let's talk disposition for your influenza patient. Disposition will depend on many clinical factors like age, respiratory status, oxygen saturation, comorbid conditions, and reliability of follow-up care. Admission might be needed not only to manage the viral infection, but also expected complications. If you're discharging a patient, be sure to engage in shared decision-making regarding risks and benefits of available treatments. Ensure outpatient follow-up and discuss return to ER precautions. Also, the CDC recommends that these patients stay home for at least 24 hours after their fever is broken. With that, let's summarize the key points and clinical pearls from this month's issue. Even though influenza vaccination effectiveness is typically only 50%, this still translates to a decrease in influenza-related morbidity and mortality. The CDC defines influenza-like illness as a temperature greater than 100 degrees Fahrenheit with either cough or sore throat in the absence of a known cause other than the influenza. When influenza is suspected in the pre-hospital setting, patients and providers should wear face masks to avoid spreading the virus. In the ED, standard isolation and droplet precautions should be maintained for suspected or confirmed infections. The most common symptom of influenza in adults are cough, fatigue, nasal congestion, and fever. Sneezing is actually a negative predictor in adults. In children, the most common presenting symptoms are fever, cough, and rhinitis. Vomiting and diarrhea is also more common in children than adults. Rapid testing and identification results in decreased delays in treatment and management decisions. During peak flu season, clinical judgment may be as good as rapid testing, making rapid testing less necessary. Rapid testing may be more beneficial in times of lower disease prevalence. Empiric treatment of critically ill patients should be considered even if rapid testing is negative. For mild to moderate disease and no underlying high-risk conditions, supportive therapy is usually sufficient. For more ill patients or those at substantial risk for complications, consider antiviral treatment. Oseltamivir is approved for patients of all ages and reduces the length of symptoms by one day. When treating influenza, paramivir is an ideal agent for the vomiting patient. Biloxivir is a new single-dose antiviral agent approved by the FDA in October of 2018. It works in a novel way and is effective for treatment of both influenza A and influenza B. 
chemoprophylaxis with oseltamivir or zanamivir should be considered in patients who are immunocompromised or patients who are at elevated risk for complications and cannot receive the vaccination. Consider oseltamivir as post-exposure prophylaxis in pregnant women. Neuraminidase inhibitors are associated with decreased duration of symptoms and complications, especially if started within two days of symptom onset. So that wraps up episode 23, Influenza, Diagnosis and Management in the Emergency Department. Additional materials are available on the website for emergency medicine practice subscribers. For our subscribers, be sure to go online to get your CME credit for this issue, which includes three pharmacology CME credits. Also, for our NP and PA listeners, we have a special offer for you this month. You can get a full year of access to emergency medicine practice for just $199, including lots of pharmacology, stroke, and trauma CME, and so much more. To get this special deal, go to www.ebmedicine.net slash APP. Again, for our NP and PA listeners, that's www.ebmedicine.net slash APP. If you're not a subscriber, consider joining today. You can find out more at ebmedicine.net slash subscribe. Subscribers get in-depth articles on hundreds of emergency medicine topics, concise summaries of the articles, calculators and risk scores, and CME credits. You'll also get enhanced access to the podcast, including the images and tables mentioned. You can find everything you need to know at ebmedicine.net slash subscribe. And the address for this month's credit is ebmedicine.net slash e1218. As always, the you heard throughout the episode corresponds to answers to the CME questions. Lastly, be sure to find us on iTunes and rate us or leave some comments. You can also email us directly at amplify at ebmedicine.net with any comments or suggestions. Talk to you all next month.